Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. You would take your Bible and join me tonight in the Gospel of Mark, the third chapter. Mark chapter 3, and we're going to give our attention to verses 7 through 21. I hope you all had a good Christmas and holiday season. We had the joy of going to Louisville for eight, nine days, seeing our four sons and our six grandchildren, and that is a blessing that many of you, like me, are now enjoying, and some of you someday will, and uh, it is all that they promised that it would be. Uh, I had pledged, along with Charlotte, that I would not act like a foolish idiotic grandparent, and I have failed miserably, and I am just as silly and uh, just as captivated, and, you know, I learned uh, that uh, as you reflect over life, when it's your children, uh, your default answer to virtually everything is no, and when it comes to your grandchildren, the default answer is what? Yes. How much, how much do you like? Which credit card would you like? Which cash, you know, the keys to the car? I know you're only two, but you want the car, you can have it. It's, it's an amazing thing how you begin to respond in such a different way. Uh, and again, it's an insight into uh, the joy and the beauty of the family. And in some ways, it should be a small portrait of what it is to be a part of the family of God, something we're going to look at uh, in, in very intent uh, analysis in just a couple of weeks. This text tonight, I'm going to really be very much a teacher tonight because there really is a lot of information here and also some really great instruction for all of us, but especially those of us that are in the ministry because there's some real insight from the verses that we're going to examine this evening as to how do we respond to all the pressures that do come in the context of ministry that we might be faithful uh, good managers of our time and relate well uh, to the people that come to us wanting things uh, as well as the people that we call to ourselves to pour our lives into them that they might multiply uh, the influence and in ministry that God has given us for his glory. And so in chapter 3, beginning with verse 7, Mark writes, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told the disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever he, the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. They came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him, number one. He might send them out to preach, number two. And they would have authority to cast out demons, number three. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name for honors ye, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaan uh, and Judas Iscariot, 
who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. When I was a little boy, I immediately fell in love with football, basketball, and baseball. And for whatever reason, I immediately became a big Green Bay Packer fan. I watched in black and white the first two Super Bowls where the Packers annihilated first the Kansas City Chiefs, and then later they whacked the uh, Oakland Raiders. And uh, I used to go out in the front yard and pretend that I was Bart Starr, I was Boyd Dowler, I was Carol Dell, uh, I was Ray Nitschke. Uh, all of those players I had virtually memorized, and uh, I was a huge Packer fan. And therefore, I also fell in love with what I believe is still to this day the greatest football coach ever, and that was a man by the name of Vince Lombardi. Uh, Vince Lombardi was a coach of the Packers for a number of years. He led them out of continuous losing seasons to world championships. He lived from 1913 to 1970 when he died of cancer. And he was a great football coach, but he was also a man of great wit and great insight. He really was a tremendous motivator. So, for example, uh, in a book uh, entitled The Wit of Vince Lombardi, you come across statements like this. Confidence is contagious. So is lack of confidence. Football is like life. It requires perseverance, self-denial, hard work, sacrifice, dedication, and respect for authority. If you accept losing, you can't win. It's not whether you get knocked down. It's whether you get up. Once you learn to quit, it becomes a habit. The good Lord gave you ability that can stand most anything. It's your mind you have to convince. It is essential to understand that battles are primarily won in the hearts of men. And then the last three, which you have in your notes that I think in some way speak to the text that we're going to examine this evening, men respond to leadership in a most remarkable way. And once you have won their heart, they will follow you anywhere. Again, people who work together will win. And his most famous statement, I suspect, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Leadership, team, fatigue. These are all themes that run through Mark chapter 3, verse 7 through verse 21. And they run through Mark 3, 7 through 21, also in the context of pressure and ministry. And the fact of the matter is, those two things always go together. Where there's ministry, there is going to be pressure. And so it's absolutely essential for all of us who wish to serve well the Lord Jesus Christ, it's absolutely essential that we understand, if you like, the playing field, that we have a balanced and realistic expectation of what is going to be involved in ministry. Do you realize that half of all the persons who come to our seminary will not be in ministry 10 years after they graduate? 50% failure rate. And over and over and over I hear, well, it wasn't what I expected. It isn't fair. Uh, the pressure's too great. I live in a glass house. And on and on and on. And what I try to do as someone who leads a seminary is try to help them understand on the front end, uh, this is the way it's going to be. There is going to be pressure. There is going to be opposition. 
People are going to let you down and fail you. There are wonderful blessings in the midst of all of this, but this is the realistic playing field upon which one will live out a ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should not be surprised because we see exactly all of these kinds of things in this particular text that we're going to examine this evening. And Jesus gives us wonderful insight as to both what to expect and also how it is that we are to deal with it. So, whether it's the opposition that you receive from the Pharisees, as we saw five occasions in chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 6, whether it's the, the press of the crowd, as we see tonight in chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, whether it's the failure of a former devoted follower like Judas that we're going to see tonight, or even worst of all, in my judgment, even if it involves the rejection of your family for your desire and willingness to follow Christ, Jesus provides for us insight and Jesus gives us a model for how we can do successful ministry even though pressures are going to come along the way. He shows us how to be faithful in His context all the way to the cross. And so three ideas will guide our study this evening. Number one, verses 7 through 12. Expect to be pressured by those who want something from you. He begins, Mark, in chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew. He wants to get away with his disciples to the sea. But a great crowd followed from, and then he lists all these places where from people are coming, pursuing and trying to track Jesus down. The Pharisees may be opposing him, as we've seen. Uh, they, along with the Herodians, may now be trying to uh, hatch a plan to get rid of him, but the people love him. And the crowds are swelling and the crowds are growing. And even though a, a contract, in essence, has been put out on him by the Pharisees and the Herodians, the people are wildly enthusiastic about Jesus and his ministry. And so literally what Mark is trying to say to us here in verse 7 and verse 8 is they're coming from everywhere. They're coming from everywhere. I've noted for you, first of all, they were coming from Galilee. Uh, this would have been uh, Jews mostly uh, in the northern part of Israel, but some Gentiles as well. They were also coming from Judea and Jerusalem. That is Jews from the south, from, from the capital city. And we're going to see later, as we have seen previously, religious leaders are part of the crowd that has come from Jerusalem in particular. Uh, Idumea, uh, a region southeast of Judea that would have uh, contained a mixture, both of Jews and Gentiles. Across the Jordan, if you're thinking of the Jordan River, you go east of the Jordan. That's what you have in mind there. That's where you had, for example, what is known as the Decapolis. The word means the ten cities. Uh, predominantly a Gentile audience coming from that particular area. And then the cities of Tyre and Sidon, way up to the north, moving toward the west. And here again, almost uh, certainly a majority, if not exclusively, a Gentile audience. Now, what I would notice this, very interestingly, I had not seen it before. Already there's a multi-ethnic movement in terms of following Jesus. Already in Mark's gospel, in this early stage, we anticipate what he commands us to do later in Matthew chapter 28 when we take the gospel to all the nations. It may be, in fact, that all the nations are coming to him right now. That's certainly what Mark is implying. But already there's a multi-ethnic movement that is catching on and getting involved in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Now, expect to be pressured by those who want something from you. No, first of all, 
Sometimes they will impose upon you. Mark says there in verse 7 that he tried to withdraw, but a great crowd followed. Again in verse 8, when the great crowd heard. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 20, and twice in chapter 4, verse 1, Mark referred to the great crowd that is following Jesus. Uh, If you like, wave after wave. Uh, Like a flock of geese heading to the south, they are flocking to Jesus. They are pressing in upon him. And, folks, the pressure had to be immense. Uh, We come to understand in this text that, number one, they weren't concerned about giving him any space. Number two, they weren't concerned about giving him any rest. In fact, we see at the end of the text, they don't care whether he eats or not. All they care is that they get from him what they want. I've mentioned this earlier in our study. Mark never portrays the crowd in his gospel in a positive light. Never. Not one time. He almost always shows that the crowds, and by the way, you're sophisticated and cute and wise. You can build a crowd, but are they really coming for the right reason? Are they really following Jesus because they want Jesus? Or are they following Jesus because they want something from Jesus? Now, that's a good question for Danny Aiken to ask. It's a good question for you to ask. Why, why do you follow Jesus? Because you want Jesus or you want something from Jesus? This text makes it very clear that they wanted something from him. So he, he tries to withdraw, but they flock to him and they press upon him. I, one of the commentaries I read said, thinking of Jesus sitting uh, under a nice tree uh, on a rock with children in his lap and little white sheep jumping around is a total myth. No, to characterize his ministry, you need to use the word bedlam and you need to use the word mayhem. And that would accurately characterize the ministry of Jesus. It was continually bedlam. It was continually mayhem. They were always after him, always trying to track him down. So much so, he has to put in place a plan to have a getaway boat. Because he says there in verse 9, he told the disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Verse 10, and he healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him so that they might touch him. So verse 10 tells us he's healing the sick. Verse 11 tells us he's casting out demons and the people, they want to get involved in all of this. They didn't care about him. They only cared what they might get. Were they concerned about his privacy? No. Did they care about his time for uh, his need for time alone? No. Did they even care about his need for food and rest? Again, no, 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 and no. Folks, there are going to be in our ministries and in our lives people that are just socially unaware. And they are absolutely oblivious to what you need. All they can they're so, if I can use the psychological term, narcissistic. They live in a self-centric universe. And so they see nothing other than what they need, what they want. And they can make life pretty miserable for some of us who are called uh, to leadership assignments and who take very seriously the calling uh, to care for the sheep that God has put under our watch care. You say, what do you do? Well, you just have to work at it. And you have to learn a magical two-letter word called no. Now, my sweet wife is here tonight, unfortunately, and so she would be the first to tell you this is the kettle calling the pot black. 
because in my 54 years on this planet, which I arrived at on Sunday, and in my now uh, 34 years in ministry, uh, I cite with grandchildren. My default answer to people when they want something from me or need something from me is yes. Yes. I'm a minister of the gospel. I'm called to serve people. People need help. What am I supposed to say? Yes. When actually sometimes the more spiritual response is no. No, I, I, I can't do that. No, I won't do that. No, you need to do that. I don't need to be your spiritual nursemaid all of your life. It's time for the little boy to sit down and the man to stand up. And you become the man of God that he created you and saved you to be. It's time for you to become the woman of God that he created you and saved you to be. And I can assist you, but I don't need to do it all for you. And from Jesus, we learned that these kind of demands are going to come. And so he's trying to get away. And he even makes plans to get away. You say, but all these people want him. Yes, but even though he was the son of God, he needed time alone just like everybody else. So recognize that people are going to impose upon you. They won't give it a second thought. You've got to be wise in how you respond. But secondly, not only will they impose upon you, they will seek to hinder you. And in particular here, I look once more at the demonic, verse 11 and Whenever the unclean spirits, that's another way that Mark, as we've seen, refers to demons. Whenever the demons, the unclean spirits, saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God, yet he strictly ordered them not to make him known. We saw repeatedly back in chapter 1, Jesus would confront and conquer the demonic as a proof that the kingdom of God has arrived in him. Also in chapter 1, as we see now in chapter 3, they basically respond in a very similar way. Number 1, they fall down before Him. And number 2, they cry out acknowledging that He is the Son of the Most High God. He is the Son of the Holy One. He is the Son of God. I never cease to marvel at the fact that demons never get it wrong in terms of who Jesus is. Not one time, not one time, not one time in all the Gospels do the demons get it wrong. The demons have really good theology. And they will spend eternity in a place called hell. Good word for us seminary guys. The demons have great Christology. They know he is the God-man who lived a sinless life, who came to make a perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. They know who he is. And so they confess that he is the Son of God, and yet Jesus says to them, be quiet. You see, he is not going to allow a declaration of deity to come out of the mouth of a demon that can only hurt his ministry. It's the wrong source, number one. They're demons. And number two, it's the wrong time because it would prematurely cause a conflict and a showdown with the religious leaders. And he's not through with his preaching, teaching, and healing ministry. No, he'll not be revealed, if you like, by a demonic confession. He will be revealed... By his death on the cross at Calvary. I suspect that the demons in their magical world thought that by uh, identifying who he was, that they could somehow uh, gain power over him. They could somehow limit him. But with just a word of authority, he silences them and puts them quietly away. In other words, he's going to carry forth his mission. Listen to me now. He is going to carry forth his mission in his way in his time and on his terms. 
in his way, in his time, and on his terms. And by way of application, the same thing should be true for you and should be true for me. We need to work in God's way, on God's terms, in God's time. Now, again, for those of us in ministry, that last one can be really hard, can be really tough. But I am always encouraged and comforted by the words of Adrian Rogers, who used to say, Men worry about time. God is only concerned about timing. And God is never early, and God is never late. He is always right on time. That's how God looks at things, but it takes faith on our part to believe and trust in that same kind of a way. But the fact is, you'll receive pressure like Jesus received pressure. Uh, to have a position, to have uh, a prosperity, to have a following that would come about in the wrong way. And Jesus, see, here, here's again, here's, here's the, 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 the damnable nature of pragmatism, which so many of our churches are filled with. The end justifies the what? The means. Well, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. God is just as concerned with the means as he is the ends. In other words, I can get to a good end, but I have to do so in an unbiblical, unspiritual, dishonest way. But God will say it's okay. Oh, no, he won't. Oh, no, he won't. God is equally concerned with how you get to where you want to go. And the end does not justify the means in God's mind. If that were the case, then Jesus would have acquiesced to the temptation of the devil in the wilderness when he said, just hit the knee one time and all the kingdom is yours. God was going to give his son the kingdom. It was going to be his. Satan's way was an easy way. The Father's way was the way of the cross. Jesus said, I've come to do the will of God. That's why at the end of this chapter we're going to see verse 35, whoever does the will of God. That's the one who is the brother, the sister, the mother, the family member of the Lord Jesus Christ. So expect to be pressured by those who want something from you. But now number two, expect to be pressured by those who want to be with you. Verse 13, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. It's very interesting. Mountains are very prominent in the life of Jesus. This is especially clear in the Gospel of Matthew. For example, the climactic temptation takes place on a mountain in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. The Sermon on the Mount is given on a mountain, Matthew 5 through 7. The call of the twelve takes place after he's been on a mountain, Mark 3.13. The transfiguration where he is glorified before Peter, James, and John takes place on the mount of transfiguration, Mark 9.2. The great eschatological or future discourse, what we call the Olivet Discourse, takes place on Mount Olivet, Matthew 24 and 25. And the Great Commission takes place again on a mountain, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, verse 20. Now, Luke chapter 6, verse 12 gives us an interesting insight that Mark left out, and that is this. He prayed all night before he called the twelve. He goes up into the mountain. He gets away from the crowd, and he prays all night before he calls the twelve. Clearly. He saw this as a crucial decision. Clearly, he saw this as very important to his ministry and the building up of the kingdom of God. Now, 
Expect to be pressured by those who want to be with you. You need to take the initiative when Jesus does. He begins by calling out the ones he wants to spend time with. It says there in verse 13 that he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. Verse 14, he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that three things I noted a moment ago, they might be with him. He might send them out to preach and they would have authority over demons to cast them out. Jesus calls out 12 specific individuals and they come. Verse 7 says they will be his disciples, which means they will follow him. They will be with him. They will learn from him. If we were to use a modern day equivalent term, we would say they were his apprentices. They were his apprentices, and for three years, they're going to be with him, to follow him, to spend time with him, and to learn from him. So they are disciples, according to verse 7, but they're called apostles in verse 14. If, if as disciples, they're called to be with him, as apostles, they're sent out by him. And so one emphasizes the fact that they come to him to spend time with him, but for the other, the word apostle emphasizes the fact that they've been sent out by him with his authority to proclaim him and the gospel. In other words, they carry out his mission, they carry out his preaching, they even are given the authority, as the text says, to cast out demons. So he appoints them, verse 14, verse 16, he wants them with him, they'll spend three years, he sends them out to preach, and he gives them authority over the demons. It's not by accident that he calls 12. Clearly, he is constituting a, a new nation, a holy nation, a holy community that we call the church. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 makes this very, very clear. So this is what they are going to do now, a little bit uh, lengthy uh, analysis. Who were they? Who were these guys? that would spend three years of their lives with Jesus, and then following his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension back into heaven, 11 of the 12 would go on and continue his ministry, and praise God they did, because if it were not for them, you and I would not be here tonight. We would not be here if it were not for the ministry of these 11 men, plus, of course, we would add the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Well, it's very interesting. And I've gone to some length to provide this for you in your notes tonight. There are four lists of the disciples found in the Bible. You note that they are found and discussed in Matthew chapter 10. Here where we are tonight, Mark chapter 3, Luke chapter 6, and it's interesting, Acts chapter 1. John does not have a list of the twelve. Luke, therefore, has two. What he gives in Luke and what he also gives in the book of Acts. So let's make some quick observations, and then I'll give you a quick word about each of them, just so that you can see those who become prominent and those who amazingly quickly, just like that, disappear from the biblical record, never to be heard from again. Well, first of all, basic observations. Number one, Matthew and Mark list a man by the name of Thaddeus, while Luke and his two lists name this man Judas, or Judas of James. Some Bible scholars, and I happen to be one of them, think that Judas may have been his original name and that it was changed later to Thaddeus, which means perhaps warm-hearted, and he changed his name to avoid the stigma attached to the name of Judas Iscariot. And I would argue that's very reasonable. So if you look up there in the list, you start at the bottom, you move up three, you see Matthew speaks of Thaddeus, Mark speaks of Thaddeus, but Luke and Acts speak of a man named Judas of James. I believe that is the same individual. 
Secondly, Simon the Canaanite is a transliteration into English of a Greek word which probably represents an Aramaic word meaning zealous. Thus, he is called Simon the Canaanite in Matthew and Mark, but he is called Simon Zelotes in Luke and in Acts. And so it may be that he was a zealot. And therefore, it's very interesting to note that Jesus was able to bring together both a zealot uh, by the name of Simon and a tax collector by the name of Matthew, who before coming to Jesus would have absolutely hated each other's guts. In fact, no question about it, if Simon was indeed a zealot, given the chance, he would have cut Matthew's throat and not even blinked. Would not even have lost any sleep over that. And yet in Christ, here they are now together. Third observation. All four lists begin with Simon Peter. And all four lists end with Judas Iscariot, except Acts, where because of his suicide, he is omitted. It's also interesting to note that the names appear to be in groups of four. Peter, Andrew, James, and John are always the first four. Not always in the same order. Peter is, by the way, always first. But Peter, Andrew, James, and John are always in the first group. Secondly, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, or Levi, are always in the second group in all four lists. So it's very interesting that that is the way the lists flesh them, themselves out. Then finally, in all four lists, Peter's name heads the first group, Philip leads the second group, and James of Alphaeus heads the third group. And of course, as I mentioned a moment ago, the person who always comes in last is Judas. Now, very quickly in your notes, I've given you a brief summation of these 12 men that I will walk through very rapidly just to give you an insight and a reminder as to who these individuals are. Peter. He was given the name Peter. Of course, his first name, his original name was Simon. In Aramaic, it is the name Cephas, uh, which means rock. He was the son of a man named Jonah. Hence, sometimes he's called uh, Simon Bar Jonah, Simon Bar, son of Jonah. So Simon, son of Jonah. He had a brother named Andrew. They were fishermen. Their home is Capernaum. In fact, we know that this is Jesus' base of operation. Of all the people that I've studied so far in Mark, the one I feel the most sorry for is Peter's mother-in-law. Her house is always filled with people. They're always trashing the joint out. They're always packed in there like rats, and she has to put up with it. So she's the one that gets the sympathy from me. Uh, he was present at the Transfiguration in Gethsemane. Uh, he denied Christ, but he was the first apostle to preach the gospel, perform a miracle, speak before the Sanhedrin, preach to Gentiles, and raise the dead. Traditionally, he was martyred in Rome in A.D. 67, being crucified upside down because he said he was not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. I point out over on the right-hand column that he is referred to in Galatians. He wrote First and Second Peter. I would also note that you could write in that box Acts 1 through 12, because his ministry is very prominent in Acts 1 through 12. The Apostle Paul's ministry is very prominent in Acts 13 through 28. In fact, some have said you could divide the book of Acts into two biographical parts, 1 through 12, Peter, 13 through 28, Paul. Peter clearly was the first among equals in the band of the apostles. Andrew, he's the one who introduced his brother Peter to Jesus. He was a fisherman. Tradition says he was martyred in Greece. That's not in the Bible. He also brought word to Jesus of Greeks who wanted to see him. Now, here's what's fascinating. 
There are only a few references to uh, Andrew in uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He gets mentioned in Luke's list of disciples in Acts 1.13, and after that, he's gone. Never hear from him again. He brought Peter to Jesus. You think, well, he must be the more important one, not the way Jesus ordained it. He gets mentioned in Acts 1. He's gone. You'll never hear from him again. And by the way, that's going to be the case with most of the rest of the apostles we're going to see with just a couple of exceptions. Third apostle, James. He's the brother of John, uh, the son of Zebedee and Salome, also a fisherman with his father and brother. They were in partnership with Peter. Uh, He was also present at the Transfiguration and in Gethsemane. Jesus called him a son of thunder. And he was the first of the twelve to be martyred. In fact, his martyrdom is recorded in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, when he is beheaded by Herod Agrippa in A.D. 44. Fourthly, John, brother of James, son of Zebedee and Salome, a fisherman, partner with Peter, also there at the Transfiguration, also there in Gethsemane, also called a son of thunder, but also called the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was given care for Mary by Jesus when he was hanging on the cross. He was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. He would eventually move to Ephesus and become the pastor there. Later, he was exiled to Patmos. And tradition has it that he is the only one of the twelve who did not suffer martyrdom. Now, we can't be sure. That's just early church tradition. But the tradition is he's the only one who lived to a ripe old age and died a natural death. You can see that there is a plethora of biblical references to him. I would simply add you could put in that box Revelation. Because he did write the Gospel of John, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he also wrote the book of the Revelation. So there's the first and the most prominent group. We can pick up the pace now. Second group, Philip. Uh, he told Nathaniel of Jesus, brought word to Jesus of Greeks who wanted to see him. Tradition is unclear of his life and death after Acts 1.13, not mentioned again. Bartholomew, probably Nathaniel. Of John's Gospel. So Bartholomew also had a second name, and it was Nathaniel, came from Cana. Uh, Bartholomew is an Aramaic name. Jesus saw him under the fig tree, and tradition says he was martyred in Armenia. Acts 1.13, not mentioned again. Thomas, who was also called Didymus, which means twin, probably was from Galilee. Uh, he asked Jesus how to know the way. He doubted Jesus' resurrection. Tradition says that Thomas went and preached in India again after Acts 1.13. Gone. Don't hear from him again. Matthew, tax collector, son of Alphaeus, also known by the name Levi, had the great feast that we've already seen for Jesus in his house. Tradition is unclear as to his ministry and death. He did write the first gospel, but after Acts 1.13, gone. Not mentioned again. Third group, James, son of Alphaeus and Mary, known as the small or the younger brother of Joseph. Tradition is unclear due to confusion with other men by the name of James. Acts 1.13, final mention, gone. Judas, not Iscariot, son of James. As we saw a moment ago, probably took the name Thaddeus. May have been a zealot. Tradition says he preached in Armenia, was martyred in Persia with Simon the zealot. Acts 1.13, gone. Never heard from again. Simon the Zealot. Tradition says he was martyred in Persia with Judas, the one called Thaddeus. Acts 1.13, never mentioned again. Finally, Judas Iscariot, possibly from Judea. 
If that's true, by the way, he was the only disciple from the south. If you remember a map of, of, of Israel, Galilee is in the north, Judea is in the south. The overwhelming evidence is the eleven were from the north and that Judas was the only one that came from the south that joined the twelve. Uh, he was called by Jesus a devil, a son of perdition. Uh, he was the treasurer for the apostolic band, and the Bible says he went out and hanged himself, committing suicide. He gets mentioned past Acts 1.13, only in 1.16, 1.18, and also 1.25. And so all this is to say this. When the pressures of ministry come, you better take the initiative to build around you a team of men and women that you can pour your life into, send them out, thereby relieving pressure from yourself and multiplying ministry for the sake of the gospel. You need to be proactive in calling to yourself those you especially believe you should spend time with. But here's what I want you to see. Secondly, recognize that some of them will still disappoint you. It says there in verse 19 that Jesus called to himself Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. You know, the Bible is brutally honest. It notes our successes. It notes our failures. It points out the good and the bad. It's very honest in its reporting. And one of the bad, tragically, is this man by the name of Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, last in every list. His betrayal is noted in every list. He was the man from Kerioth, probably a small village there in the south. And again, as I mentioned earlier, some believe he was the only disciple from the southern part of Israel, from Judea. Now, here's what's amazing. Think about it. Who called Judas to be a disciple? Jesus did. So the next time you have someone that fails you or lets you down, even Jesus only got 11 out of 12 right. They said, well, he knew in advance all that was, that, that begs a question. That's a different question for a different day. Jesus called him. Not only did Jesus call him, they made him the treasurer. In other words, I would argue, based upon the limited biblical data, he was probably the most impressive. He was probably the smartest. He was probably the one with the greatest potential for success in ministry. And he's the one that crashed and burned. When I was here the first time back in 1992 through 96, I went out to lunch one day with the former president of Southeastern Seminary, the man by the name of Paige Patterson. And as we were sitting there, he said to me, you know, it's quite sobering for me to realize that of the 20 most gifted people that I've ever had the privilege of teaching, only two of the 20 are still in the ministry today. And then he quickly added... And you are not one of the two. Well, thank you, Dr. Patterson. I appreciate that word of affirmation and encouragement very much. But what he was pointing out was the most gifted, the most talented, the ones who showed the most promise were the ones who fell by the wayside. You say, why do you think that happens? I think it happens because they trust more in themselves than they do God. They've got great gifts and great abilities. See, if, you, if you're like me and you don't have great gifts and abilities, if God doesn't show up, you're done. I mean, if God doesn't show up, you have no hope. All you're going to do is fall flat on your face and make a fool of yourself. You, 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 you're on your knees pleading with him to take what little you have to give him and do something that will surprise all of us. Judas wasn't like that. And so they made him the, uh, the treasurer. 
He gave evidence of being loyal and trustworthy and gifted, and yet the text says he was dishonest and a thief. And I just say this, and we'll move to our third point. You serve long enough, and people will disappoint you. You stay in ministry long enough, and people that you thought would take a bullet for you will be the ones who will put a bullet in you. There are people that you'll think will guard your backside, and all of a sudden there's a knife in your back, and you turn around, and they're the one who has the knife in their hand. I was talking to my friend Tom Rayner today, and I said, Tom, you know what? If we get to the end of our lives and we had even five people in the foxhole with us that would be willing to take a bullet for us, we are very wealthy men. In my younger years, I thought, oh, no, there'll be 20 or 25. No, I'll be happy. I'll feel blessed of God if there's just five. And I'm not counting on that. Finally, number three, expect to be pressured by those who not only want something from you and want to be with you, but who misunderstand you. I think verse 21 is one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. Verse 20, he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. I'll address that word in just a moment. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. It's one thing to be misunderstood, let down, and betrayed by a friend. But it's a wholly different thing for that to be your family. Charlotte and I have a dear couple. Their first names are Chris and Rebecca. That's all you need to know. Been on the mission field now for more than a decade. As they were preparing to go to the mission field they shared with us that both sides of the family, both parents were adamantly, adamantly, adamantly opposed to their going to the nations to take the gospel to those who've never heard. They used one of the classic um, arguments that grandparents often use. How dare you take my grandchildren away from me? In my judgment, such grandparents should be shot in Jesus' name. That is my own personal thought on that matter, as a grandparent of six. In fact, one side, he never told me which one. And by the way, both sides profess to be Christian. Both sides attend church every Sunday. One side even sought to take out a legal warrant to have them declared Mentally unstable to keep them in America because they were making the argument it would be dangerous. And it was, by the way. It absolutely was dangerous on one level for them to take those children overseas. We saw them just a couple of years ago when we were in Thailand with about 1,500 of our missionaries. And as we sat down with Chris and Rebecca, I said, I'm just curious. Because it's been 10 years now. I said, uh, have things changed with your parents? No. Have either sets of parents ever come to visit you on the mission field? No. When you go back home for stateside assignment, do they still, it's just as bad as it was the day we left. Now, it's one thing for the lost people to think we're crazy and to oppose us. But when it's your own family, your own flesh and blood, well, that's what we have here. Jesus has returned probably to Capernaum, the house of Peter and Andrew. 
Some things haven't changed, verse 20, and some things sadly have. First of all, we see again that the crowds, they may try to control you. It says there in verse 20, when he went home, the crowds gathered again. And here they are again. So that he could not even eat. In my notes, I have written with a selfish vengeance. They went after him again. The house is packed. He can't find time to rest. Well, he can't even find time to eat. And the text clearly implies they don't care. They don't care. They, they'll eat, but he doesn't need to eat. They'll rest, but he doesn't need to rest. Again, you think sometimes of what demands are placed on our pastors. And I don't talk to Bill about these kind of things. I just know how it works. We all expect them to be there when we want them. We all expect them to be there when we need them. And we don't think about how sometimes we're being very selfish, very self-centered, very insensitive. And we've got a good staff. We, we've got good pastors. And yet sometimes people get, well, they didn't come. They didn't come because maybe they couldn't. They didn't come because maybe they just didn't really need to. They don't need to hold your hand every time you get a hangnail. They really don't. And if they say no then man up, girl up, and just deal with it. Instead of whining and griping and backbiting and being a rumor monger, God will get you. God will get you, and, and rightly so. He ought to get you. I tell you, but God will just knock you down and, you know, make life miserable for a few days. I'd take you out if I could. That's why, praise God, I'm not God, but that's what I'd do. Of course, I'd take me out long before, too, so just understand, uh, I understand where I stand in all that as well. But no, sometimes people are just so, so socially insensitive and unaware, they, they just don't get it. But, so they try to control him again, but now here's the, the kicker as we close. Some will try to stop you. First mention of his family here in verse 21, it's not good. They hear he's swamped in ministry. They hear he is uh, swamped with mission. Evidently, he won't tell people no. Evidently, he's not even taking care of himself. And so they come, and the text says, they seek to seize him. Uh, that word means they sought to take him by force. The word is sometimes used in Mark for arresting someone. So just like you would arrest someone by force, their goal is to take him by force. That's bad enough. But what's really bad is what they were saying about him. And the text says, for they were saying, that's in the present tense, by the way. Uh, every time they talk to somebody, yeah, I know, gosh, Jesus, you know, bless his heart, he's just lost it. <laughs> he's just, he's just, he's just lost. I mean, I, you know, I thought I raised him well, thought he was going to be a normal kid, but he, he's just lost it. In our day and uh, time, we'd say he, he's desperately in need of therapy, if not a little drug therapy. You know, that's what he needs. I mean, just, he's just, and he's just embarrassing the family. And by the way, in this culture, where shame is so great, oh my goodness, he was an embarrassment. He was an absolute embarrassment to the family. In fact, Wessel says, in a culture in which honor and shame were critically important, there may also have been an attempt to prevent shame in the family caused by Jesus' behavior. In other words, he was a religious fanatic who was hurting the family, and he was a danger to himself. He had to be stopped. Let's slap him in a straight jacket. Let's put him in a padded cell. Let's give the man some drugs. Let's calm him down. And so they came to take him by force and carry him back home. And let me just quickly add, think of the tragedy that it would have been had they succeeded. Think of the tragedy that would have occurred had they been able to stop him. So very quickly we close. What do we learn from this text that will give us insight in ministry in terms of how we start well, 
run well and finish well, you see seven observations. I'll just tell them just like that. Number one, when it comes to ministry and being effective in ministry, whether you are vocational like me or a lay minister, you, you are a minister if you're following Jesus on some level. You better know who you are and why you're here. He knew who he was. He was the Son of God sent to seek and save that which was lost. He was the Son of God who came to give his life a ransom for many. And he would not be deterred, whether it be friend, demon, or family. Keep that in mind. Number two, make time to get away. Take control of your schedule and calendar. If you don't, others will. Number three, surround yourself with others you can train, delegate to, and send out to do the work of the ministry. Number four, recognize no matter how hard you try and how much you invest, some are going to disappoint you. Jesus had Judas. Number five, remember the ministry is a 24-7 calling that does require your constant attention, but also your management. Number six, understand those closest to you may misunderstand you and even oppose you. And number seven, never, ever forget that all that matters in life and ministry is that you please God and, as verse 35 says, do His will. Don't lose sight of the goal. Jesus didn't. The cross was never out of view. It was his divine destiny. And praise God, he did not let the pressures of ministry distract him or deter him. He stayed focused. He stayed on point. He was faithful in his mission and his ministry all the way to the cross. Praise God that he was. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what we learned from this text about the pressures of ministry. Thank you for what we learned about the need to call others to ourselves, to, to come around us and with us to do the ministry, recognizing that even some that we think will turn out to be all-stars for the Savior will wind up plunking out and not even making it in the minors. Help us, Lord, to understand that sometimes even family will oppose us because they just won't understand that ultimately in life what really matters is that we please not them but you and that we do your will, even if it's painful and even if it involves suffering and sorrow and disappointment. We thank you that Jesus was faithful all the way to the cross. If he could do that, then we certainly can be faithful with the ministry that you have given us. May we be so to bring honor and glory and great praise to your name. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.